This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. In a world where change is constant, it pays to look beyond your borders. The Financial Times offers a global perspective to give you a deeper understanding of international markets and emerging trends. Broaden your horizons and widen your influence. Fearlessly pink. The Financial Times. Read more at ft.com slash fearless. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Hello, I'm Emma Barnett and welcome to Woman's Hour from BBC Radio 4. Good morning. It, it would be ideal, wouldn't it, would it not, to start the week feeling like anything is possible, ignoring the winds and the rain if the elements have already smacked you in the face today already. I've had that joy. Uh, My first guest today, the actor Samantha Morton, is certainly the living embodiment of that, having grown up in the care system, conquered Hollywood and having just become one of the younger recipients of the prestigious BAFTA Fellowship Award last week. I'll be talking to her in just a moment. Equally, another formidable woman joins me today, Mary Beard, to paint a picture of women's lives alongside and around the huge force that was the Roman army. And yet, keeping on with the idea that anything is possible, or should certainly seem possible, we hope, we'll be talking about the fact that we are in a leap year, about to hit that elusive 29th of February this week, and the fact that some women still feel they ought to wait for this day to do the proposing. Now, many caveats aside about marriage rates, different ways to live, heteronormative relationships, why is it still the case that women do not believe it is a woman's role to propose, pop the question and some of the other stubbornly persisting traditions of marriage. Why do some women think that is the case and some men, which is, you know, part of this as well. You can adore marriage, what the union represents and do things completely differently, of course. You can loathe it. And if that's the case, probably from around 20 past 10 or thereabouts, you won't be loving that part of the programme. But a significant number of women will not propose will not keep their names, will not give speeches at their weddings. Some will talk about, it's my choice. But is it? For others, it's tradition, it isn't questioned. Perhaps it's questioned way later on in life and you look back at some of those things now and you see it wasn't perhaps a choice, it was expectation. Where are you on this? Where are we? What should we take from the fact that these traditions continue and certainly in some people's eyes keep women in certain positions Or maybe not. If you had proposed, what would your partner have said? Are you thinking about doing it? Perhaps you're doing it this week. Genuinely, what is going on? 84844, that's the number you need to text me here at Woman's Hour. On social media, we're at BBC Woman's Hour or email me through the Woman's Hour website. These are really personal choices. There'll be some of you thinking, why are you even bothering spending any time on this? But it isn't actually just about marriage, is it? It's about some of these other things that point to the way women still live and interact with men and vice versa. So that's what we can get into. Uh, It's interesting, we had some messages already on this last week. Uh, An anonymous one saying here, I proposed on Valentine's Day on a card with a bouquet of red roses. Corny, I know, this is from a female listener but no name. It took him six months to respond. Lawyers never rush into anything. It's our 18th wedding anniversary this year. Do not give up if it's something you really want. What did you do in those six months? 
I was proposed to, but my uh, my now husband uh, did stick with it, having heard me say only a week earlier when we were together at home, do not propose to me because I will not say yes. Um, I don't even think I replied straight away because I was so struck, as someone who does like to ask questions, how short the window was to actually give a response. Uh, I did in the end, and I did say yes. And, you know, there's romance involved here. It was an incredibly romantic moment. But there's one here saying, I proposed to my husband over a dinner of beans on toast while we were both in our dressing gowns, not on the 29th of February, as I've never paid any attention to this silly quote-unquote rule. I think women and think women should not wait for men to propose. And so it goes on. Please keep your messages coming in. Anything you want to contribute as well throughout the programme, I'd love to hear from you. But my first guest has just received the BAFTA Fellowship, this Lifetime Achievement Award, which recognises an outstanding contribution to film and television. Previous winners include Elizabeth Taylor, Dame Judi Dench, Dame Helen Mirren, and now the actor Samantha Morton. Samantha's been acting since she was 13 in a huge range of roles. Oscar nominated for a Woody Allen film. She starred opposite Tom Cruise in Minority Report, I always think of that, uh, and appeared as an iconic villain in The Walking Dead. Uh, More recently, she's played Zelda Perkins, the real-life former assistant of disgraced Hollywood mogul Harvey Weinstein. And in a moving speech at the awards ceremony last Sunday, which duly went viral, Samantha, who grew up in the care system, dedicated the award to every child in care today. In 2008, I directed my first film, The Unloved, and it was about faith, I believe in God, it was hope and forgiveness but as much as anything it was what I wanted to tell little Sam homeless and cold hungry and alone but you'll have a family one day and you'll have a life beyond what the government statistics have laid out for you because you matter so don't give up Samantha Morton joins me now good morning congratulations Samantha Good morning. Thank you very much. Uh, lovely. Hey. Well, lovely to have you with us. It, it must be strange sometimes hearing those speeches about that you've thought about and then you deliver and it feels, I imagine, like an out-of-body experience in some ways. Yeah, well, it's it's always strange hearing our own voice. I mean, we're in media, but you know what I mean? It's um, I, I don't like the sound of my voice. So hearing it back, I'm like, oh! Is that what I sound like? <laughs> well, that's a whole other thing. I, I, I suppose yeah, that yeah. when you when you were told that you were to receive this, uh, where were you? How did you feel about it? It was, um, I was actually going to see uh, my neighbour Totoro at the Barbican with my family just before Christmas. And uh, yeah, I, I got, as we do, we're addicted to our phones, a lot of us. So my family went to get ice cream at the interval and I checked my emails, which is very silly, but I did. And it was there and I thought it was a mistake. I thought they'd made a mistake. And then I emailed back and said, I think this um, this is wrong. Um, and they came back and said, no, this is right. And then I cried. I just had a bit of a, like a, hoping that people didn't think I was completely nuts or that I'd have terrible news sitting there at the interval sobbing. <laughs> like, there weren't many people around me, but, you know. There, there is that. But what was the what was the reason, do you think, it, it struck you in that way? Well, I talked about it in my speech, and it's recognition. It's that, um, obviously, recognition for my work felt incredible because as, a, as, a, uh, as an actor who has been, I think actually my first job was I was 12. It was a talk, write and read educational program. Um, and, you know, I've been working pretty much, doing, you know, extra work, walk on one. All, I've done every job imaginable pretty much on a film set. And... You know, there's been times when I've had incredible highs and in t- and then there's been times when I've been unemployable due to um, 
people saying I was difficult to work with. Um, difficult meaning I would say no if somebody wanted me to take my bra off on set because they wanted to see my nipples. Um, difficult because I would challenge um, the way that a set was being ran at times um, when people uh, were were not being treated very well um, or, you know, crew's hours were too long and, you know, all sorts of things like that. So I know we don't have much time, but it, it's, it, it just felt um, incredible to think that if you stick to your guns and you stick to um, your beliefs and, you know, it, I suppose it, it, it turned out all right. You know, there were times there when it, it wasn't OK well, we, had, we do have time, Samantha, know. and and just just oh, okay. <laughs> on that on that point, I'm not I'm not rushing you at all. Please don't think that. Um, on that on that point about taking your bra off and not showing your nipples, I, I you know I presume that was a very real request in a in a set scenario. Oh, absolutely, yeah. On on a set in front of the entire crew. Um, also, when I was very young, you know, the the lovely lovely costume and hair and makeup girls would give me corn plasters to put on my breasts. Um, when I was doing sex scenes for Band of Gold because I, I was so frightened and didn't want to, you know, Kay Meller, the incredible writer Kay Meller would write a scene that says, you know, Tracy is in bed with a, a punter or a client. Um, uh, I played a young prostitute, uh, a trafficked child, actually, as we would say now, um, in Band of Gold, a TV show that was uh, in the early 90s on ITV. Very, very successful. Brilliant. And I, I hadn't because I didn't go to drama school and because I wasn't from a certain type of family, family, if you like, I didn't know how to, to speak up for myself. I didn't have anyone being an advocate for me other than the other women who would say, listen, if you put these plasters on your nipples, then they can't show your breasts on television, you know, because everything is down to interpretation. So if the scene is is requiring an int- intimacy, um, it's down to the director of how they're going to shoot that and, and what you do. It, it sounds like you are having to walk align with with not having that background as you say and then still trying to get work all the time and figure out how you could still be you in that space yeah yeah and how you navigate um relationships on set and when you're playing very vulnerable raw intense characters but also um you you have to remember that we we were living in we were working and living in times where it it, it was terrible for for women on film sets and we're not talking about that long we're not talking about that long ago no no and i just felt so incredibly privileged to be have to have a job to be working to not be living in a homeless hostel to not be you know surrounded by dangerous individuals and i felt that i was in a safer environment not every set was like that and i have to really stress that not every set was like that and i love my community I love my job but there were times when it wasn't I just wasn't welcome because of who I am because of where I'm from and that was very evident so to get the fellowship from BAFTA it it, it is it it's other than my 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 children and and being in a in the relationship I'm in is is possibly the the most incredible thing that's ever happened to me I, I want I want to come back to a couple of themes about your industry if I can and being a yeah. woman but just I also thought what was striking in your speech is you, you talked about it and you could have missed it but you did make a point of saying you have faith um you talked about Absolutely. a belief yeah. in God which I think in this yeah. country certainly um doesn't always get spoken about uh, publicly it's not cool is it it's not cool to talk about you know faith um but if you were to or any of your viewers viewers or listeners were to look at my film uh, the unloved it, it talks about this character who's making her ho- first holy communion 
and her relationship with God. But also it, it's quite complex when you are surrounded by abuse and harm. How do you navigate that and not hate somebody else? You know, an eye for an eye. I, I just I never felt um, I mean, around the age of 14, I felt absolute anger at the authorities and the people that had harmed me and abused me. But prior to that, I was just kind of in it. Um, and just felt that forgiveness was the best way forward. You're talking because, about abuse within the the care system yeah, and how you absolutely. were looked after growing up. Oh yeah, absolute neglect beyond from the 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 state, um, which is still happening today. That's why I support Article Thirty Nine, the charity, and I support the NSPCC that has um, they've got a new campaign coming out this week, um, which is called Listen Up, Speak Up, which is a ten minute uh, online uh, thing you can do where it helps you learn how to to it's a training course to see how you can spot signs of abuse in in children so yeah I try and do the best I can but ultimately back then when I was very small yes. and moved from foster home to foster home children's home to children's home um, you know it faith and my belief in in something bigger and other than myself and loving other people helped me survive. Is that why you wanted to talk about believing in God publicly? Is, is that, was that important as part of that message? I, I think that just kind of came out. <laughs> you know, that just just happened. Um, and it's everybody's personal journey, isn't it? Whatever faith you, you are connected to, um, whether you just believe in a higher power, but something other than yourself that is that is bigger than you, that is about a community, it's about loving other people, um, and and also hate doesn't work. I, I was very angry when I was fourteen with everything, and it just didn't get me anywhere. It, it was the you know the, the the wrong way to use anger, I suppose. So being so loving other people and believing everybody has a right to be here, no matter who you are, what you do, what you've done, um, forgiveness certainly meant I was able to survive and move forward. And yes, I don't well, know, it just helps. I I wonder though if now looking at your your journey where you've got to and and where you're from and how your upbringing did shape you and and did you know create certain circumstances for you that sometimes would have been harder and other times may have driven you on as well do you think someone coming from from that sort of background today could make it to the BAFTA fellowship could make it to where you are have things got got better or worse in that respect they've got worse it it depends which which road we're talking about so education wise we do know that the past 14 years successive governments have decimated um the arts um, in regards to schools, drama teachers, libraries, books, you know, books in school. And I was privileged enough to, even though I went to state school, there were books available all the time. A teacher wheeled in a big telly and played as Kez, the film. Um, I had great drama teachers at school. That's Ken Loach's, um, Ken Loach's film. Yes, Ken Loach's film, Kez, yeah. Yes. Um, and, you know, it was it was drama was really, really highly regarded at, at my school, Westbridge for Comprehensive. So it you know, I was really lucky. I'm not sure that most children, whether you are looked after or just at a state school now, get that opportunity to to kind of learn about, you know, drama. Um, but likewise, I think the way that children are looked after now by the local authority, bearing in mind that it has been pretty much totally privatised um, and the ineptitude and the it is not fit for purpose. So I I just think it would be even it would be incredibly hard for a young person to 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 achieve that today for many different reasons. 
it's also striking today, I'm talking to you, and, and it's linked in some ways. We're going to come to this a bit later in the programme, but there's a new report out today showing young people are more likely to be out of work in this country because of poor mental health, depression and anxiety than those in their early 40s. Uh, people aged wow. 18 to 24 may not have had access to steady edu- education and can end up out of work or in low-paid jobs. Um, and we've got some messages about this this coming in, this idea about things getting worse, not better. They absolutely are getting worse, but that doesn't mean they can't get better when we have a new government and we have, you know, people willing to take um, mental health seriously. We've had the pandemic. Those those young people and even much younger people have been through the most horrific um, isolation, you know, times. And also we have this, we're aware of this if you're a parent or even just our own addictions, the phone, you know, social media. We are very, very aware now of the mental health aspects of young people staring at phones all day or TikTok or Instagram. Social media has amazing positive things it can give, but it also, you know, it's well, it, incredibly it, detrimental it, to it, our health. It's, it's also just going back to the beginning of our conversation as we start to come towards the end is you talked about how though things have got better in your world in some ways and social media with the Me Too movement will have played a part in that. There's intimacy coordinators on set. There are greater levels of literacy around mental health, even if the the support services, certainly from the state, are incredibly patchy, to say the least, which we have covered and will continue to cover on this programme. I, I just wanted to come to the fact that you, having played Zelda Perkins, who I've interviewed before, actually, um, the, the former mm. assistant to uh, Harvey Weinstein, who's, of course, head of Miramax, um, and one of the, the many women speaking to the New York Times journalists um you also had an encounter with Weinstein not of a sexual nature but of the threat of being blacklisted um what 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 is your view of that now and and how do you remember that it's interesting because at the time I didn't realize I had been if you like my name crossed off his list he was a very he is still a very powerful very very talented producer um and I really really wanted to work for Miramax as a young person I I went in and met them and it was all very happy and then I was offered a particular film that I didn't want to do and so I turned it down and I was told you you don't say no to Harvey then every single time I was either wanted by a director or by anybody else within his company he would just say no he would then acquire films that I was part of and uh, contrary to my contract he would try and get my name off the cover or move my face out of the you know, the, when you have DVDs back in the day, there was all sorts of things that Miramax did. But I, I kind of didn't realise it at the time. And it was only in hindsight that I went through certainly my relationship with Terry Gilliam and what happened there. And uh, which I've talk, spoken about publicly, that it was written about in a book. And then someone pointed it out to me that Terry had tried to cast me in a movie um, and Harvey basically went above and beyond to make sure I wasn't cast in that movie. To be fair to Harvey, it was his film. He's a producer, and if he doesn't want someone in the role, that's that's his right. This, However... This is all because you, was... you said no to a project. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. After I did a film called Under the Skin uh, many, many years ago, there was a huge amount of interest in me in America and in Hollywood, and I moved to New York, and I was doing independent cinema in New York, which was amazing. And, yeah, there was a... There was a requirement for me to go and do certain parts, which I just didn't want to do. And back then, you you kind of you arrived at a studio and you were kind of part of their stable, if that made sense. You didn't you weren't under like a three picture deal all the time or things like that. But it, you 
you know, if you impressed them and you did one film for them and that did all right, you know, then you were kind of in there, you were in their stable. But I would look at a role and if I didn't feel that I could, was challenging enough or if I thought it was misogynistic or it was just horrible kind of 90s, Pap, which, yeah, you know, it, I'd be like, must, no, I don't want to do this. But it must be just so, I don't know what the word is for it, but, but something to look back and realise that now and, and see all those patterns and have that well, understanding also, with, with the knowledge of what he's he's then yeah, been in court for. Just, yeah, it wasn't just Harvey. You've got to remember, it's not just Harvey. That we There was a huge amount of other individuals that behaved atrociously, really up until the mid-2000s. I was working alongside men who... Their behaviour was absolutely unprofessional and probably wouldn't wouldn't happen today, but certainly was still happening right up until the, the Harvey Weinstein scandal came out. Um, many, many individuals. I was fired from one movie because I wouldn't go to dinner with the, um, the studio execs wearing a skirt. There you go. I mean, you say hopefully it isn't <laughs> happening today, but but that's no, the thing. I don't we, we, think we, so in the same well, way. Well, yes, but you, I suppose sometimes we history's being written as we speak, so you, you sometimes mm. don't know where things are. But Samantha, sorry, yeah. were you about to add final thing there? I just wanted to say that there was there's there was also lots of enablers. You know, you've got to remember a lot of agents out there knew what was happening and didn't speak up. So that we have spoken up now. Hopefully, every single aspect of our industry has had a good hard look at every aspect of how they do business. And moving forward, because of people like Zelda Perkins, things are changing. And and with BAFTA, who have, we have to remember is an arts charity, recognising someone like me, I take that honour incredibly seriously and I'm grateful. And moving forward, that we, we will have change. We will see positive change. Samantha Morton, thank you very much for talking thank to you. us today. Thank you. And congratulations again. I mean, Samantha, thank there you. talking talking about how things have got worse. Some of you will, will definitely be in agreement with that um, across the board. Others of you will have very different experiences. And, and some of you, of course, will be thinking, well, there's been some, certainly some tough choices to be made in this country uh, recently, not least because of the pandemic and where investment's gone and uh, a change of government won't be the answer. But we'll have an election to sort that out at some point. Uh, and some interesting uh, messages coming in about that uh, report, which I'll get to a bit later in the programme, showing uh, mental health and the young uh, one headline today uh, certainly the Daily Mail put it in a slightly different way called it Generation Sick Note so certainly uh, probably in some ways a, a conversation to be had about the real reasons behind that we will get to that and speak to one of the people behind that report uh, but Samantha Morton there giving her take and giving some insights many messages coming in about the fact we are in a leap year Later this week, the elusive 29th of February, the day where traditionally women, quote unquote, are allowed to propose to their male partner is coming. Uh, there are various historical women it seems we may owe this tradition to. Uh, we've had a look this morning, including St. Bridges in Ireland in the 5th century, Queen Margaret of Scotland in the 13th century. But why are we still in this situation where it's considered unusual for women to propose? You may argue it's not, but it is still something that is not the norm, it seems. Uh, but I'm, I'm up for that argument. The wedding speech writer and founder of Speechy, Heidi Ellett McDermott's here, and Dr. Vera Beckley Herschler, uh, lecturer in marketing at Royal Hollywood. Uh, Holly, Hollywood? I've just been thinking about Hollywood. Royal Holloway, University of London School of Business and Management, who's one of the co-authors of the, uh, the interesting sounding research, Women Proposing Gender Equality in Wedding Rituals. Uh, let me come to you first, Vera. Uh, you, you've had a look at this. What, 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 what can we say about where we're up to with women proposing? So what we found, first of all, it was, of course, a joint research project. I did this research together with Daniela Pirani, who's at University of Liverpool, and Ratna Kaniju, who is at Goldsmiths, University of London. 
And what we found is that this is still very much a trope that is alive and well in the 21st century, that women do not propose, that uh, women wait to be asked. Uh, what we found, so our research was partly a virtual ethnography, where we looked at a lot of different uh, handles and posts and blogs and comments on them, etc., but where we also interviewed 21 women who did propose to men uh, within heterosexual relationships. So almost all of them were heterosexual relationships. And we did find that it is something that is not often openly celebrated or that when women do propose, there is often a backlash. So there's a backlash online with some nasty comments blaming women on the kind of the downfall of culture when they propose. But also some women had the experience that close members of family or even of kind of extended family saw it as quite negative. And one of our participants, she said, I was so shocked. She said she was so shocked by her mother's reaction, who used to be a punk, who said, oh, why couldn't you just have this fairy tale moment? Why couldn't you wait for him to ask? The good news, however, was that the vast majority of men were absolutely thrilled to be asked to marry their significant other. Uh, within our whole data set, we could only find two cases where, so one where the proposal was rejected, and incidentally, that was on leap day. <laughs> and in this case, the woman was very traditional, and she felt that this was, you know, that this was kind of the the way in which a proposal was to be done by a woman and her that now husband um, actually said, no, this is not your place, get up. <laughs> okay, really, so so um, a, a, bit, a, yeah. a bit of a flavour there of, of what you yeah, found. And, exactly. and interesting to hear that a lot of men absolutely fine with it as well, although some, some saying otherwise and the, there is that backlash. Heidi, where, where do you come at this from looking at the wedding industry? Well, I um, came into the wedding industry about nine years ago and I was shocked at how traditional and sexist it was. Obviously, we write wedding speeches and um, it was clear that brides were still reluctant to um, deliver a wedding speech on the day. You know, it's it's one of those days where we're actually in charge of the lineup and we, we still weren't going for it. But obviously, over the years, um, I've spoken to loads and loads of couples and um, I can name, I can um, count on my hand the numbers where it's a straight woman that proposed to the man. And generally, what I find is still to this day, a lot of men going that they were pestered jokingly um, by their fiancé or indeed her mother into... Um, proposing to her so she, he was pestered into it as opposed to the women taking the initiative for their marital status and it's just something I would have hoped would have developed over the years. Yeah I, I mean that's the thing it's it's you can obviously do what you want in many ways but it hasn't changed very yeah. much because I suppose there are also these these things to do with um, tradition. Let me just bring in a couple of our, our listeners who, who've been in touch. Uh, have I got James I hope on the phone? Hello James. Oh, Josh, forgive me. I've got James written down here. <laughs> yeah, you've got a Josh here. We'll get, oh, yeah. we'll get a James as well later. Josh, um, were you proposed to? I was, yeah, on the 29th, yeah, yeah. Okay, and what happened? 
Um, well, we'd, we'd been together the best part of 18 months, I think, and we'd kind of thought that, well, we certainly felt we were right for each other and it kind of hummed and hard a little bit about getting married. And the, uh, the 29th was coming up and we went out for dinner and things. And I, I just had an inkling that, you know, th- this might be coming. I, I think I probably made a few helpful remarks about, I bet there are a lot of boyfriends running away from their girlfriends today, um, <laughs> which probably didn't help matters. But, um, but I... The evening went on, we went out for a meal and no proposal, and I just, there was a kind of tension, I think, a little bit between us, and then um, got home, and the evening went on, and got later and later, went to bed, and I kind of thought, if if Claire hasn't proposed to me before midnight, I'll wait till a minute past midnight, and I'll propose to her instead, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and, uh, and about two minutes to midnight, where we were pretty much asleep, she did, and... Uh, <laughs> What, and just, I said yes immediately, of course. So just like a, I'm sorry, just just to sleep, you know, just across the the pillow. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like that. Last minute. I'm, I'm as a journalist, yeah. I fully approve of that. To keeping it there. Did Did you, you know, on, on a serious note, did you mind that it was that way around? Of course not, and I wouldn't have minded if it had been any other day of the year. Frankly, I mean, any, anyone less bound by tradition than my wife is um, hard to imagine. She <laughs> She was a drummer in a punk all female band when I first met her. So. Um, you know, she's uh, she's not someone who feels obliged to do the traditional thing by any means. OK, well, there you go. There'll be um, perhaps some men <laughs> primed for a two minutes to 12 uh, proposal uh, when it comes to uh, later on this week on the 29th. Um, I think we've got Lara on the line. Hello, Lara. Hi there. Uh, yes, I, I proposed to my husband um, on the 29th of February in 2016 and he was really poorly in hospital. So he has cystic fibrosis. I had actually met him a year before I had breast cancer at 31 and I wrote a blog about my experience a friend passed it on he read it and contacted me over Facebook and we fell in love we had a mutual wow um a mutual interest in death we kind of joked who was going to die first (laughs) and I had been given the all clear and I'd, you know, I'd met, he was the most wonderful man. And I thought, oh my goodness, it's I, it's taken me all this time. I'd had so many awful past relationships. And I thought, it was, it was weird, actually. I, I'd just heard it on the radio the week before. They were like, oh, it's elite day next week. And I just thought, oh, it's too much of a coincidence. So I drove the hour and a half to Southampton Hospital where he was being treated, surprised him with a cake that said, uh, I love you, Mikey, marry me. And he he was kind of like, oh, my goodness. And he said, yes. And we got married a few months later that same year. And then he he was listed for a double lung transplant and had a successful double lung transplant in August 2018. And he's now thriving and we're still very happily married. And I kept my surname and he kept his. Well, there you go. I mean, having had a competition about who was going to die first, I mean, you've got to have some kind of sense of humour, I suppose, in these scenarios. Uh, It's it's, it's brilliant to hear that you're thriving on both levels uh, and and did that. And, and, you know, there may be somebody listening right now, Lara, who doesn't, hadn't clocked it was a leap year and, yes, may not feel they need that reason. I don't know if you felt like you needed that to to do the proposing, but may now go and do something uh, later on this week, on the 29th, um, along the lines that you're talking about. Did you feel you needed the leap year? No, not at all. Well, I, I probably wouldn't have proposed to him. It was weird. It was kind of like it. It was almost like things oh, came should, together. You, 
you should it just happened and I was like oh my goodness yes because if I propose to him then he'll know that I'm not going to do a runner when things get really tough throughout all his hospital stays and and it definitely feels like we are a real unit we can't get rid of each other now we're (laughs) We're there to stay there you go there well there are many messages coming in and this one from Claire thank you so much Lara good to talk to you Josh Uh, Claire says I proposed 36 years ago he said yes I vomited it was after tequila slammers next day we didn't speak about it until later that day he announced to his mum we were getting married we're still married it's going well so far 36 years on I'll always go towards a message that's got the word vomit and tequila in it Um, another one here I sent a congratulations on your engagement card 29th of February 1988 to Jeff we had sort of discussed marriage he said nothing on the day so I thought I'd blown it next day I received 12 red roses to the company I was working for with a card saying the answer is yes we've been very happily married for nearly 35 years go for it ladies Uh, another one here Esme says after 20 years I got fed up with waiting so I went ahead and booked the wedding I asked my brother-in-law to make sure he got his brother there been married now for eight it's one of the best things we've done and laura with a slightly different take on this listening in east sussex good morning when a man asks a woman to marry him he's actually putting the power in the woman's hands she's the one who gets to say yes or no there are many many talk about how nerve-wracking it is not to mention the fact that by proposing the man demonstrates how much value and worth he places on his partner let's not add marriage proposals to the list of things women are expected to do laura not looking for another job there i mean perhaps that's a way of looking at it coming back to you heidi here in the studio Oh, gosh, I don't think it's another job. I think it's an opportunity to, um, on a serious note, take control of what you want to do and not be... Waiting. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, if it's a fear of rejection, let it be and and let that play out. You don't want to be with someone who doesn't want the same things as you. But on a more fun note, it's um, romantic and... I mean, talking from personal experience, my husband's proposal was rubbish. And I, I like, I just would have done it much better. What so, was it? Are you allowed to say? <laughs> it was just whispered in a restaurant, you know. There was no down on one knee. There was nothing exciting about it. Would you have gone down on one knee? I'm only asking because Anna says, I proposed to my soon wife to be the traditional way, down on one knee with a ring in my hand. I honestly don't think I'd have known how to propose without that script to follow. So if I'd wanted to marry a man, my main issue wouldn't have been women don't propose, but men don't wear engagement rings. Uh, that's from Anna. Oh, I wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have wasted money on an engagement ring, but I would have done something fun, you know. As well as leap year, there's loads of different days that can maybe be more suitable to your own relationship, you know. But Wait. I, I, well, I suppose also you can you can make of that what you will. I, I just wanted, with the time we have left, to get to get to the idea from what you've seen within the wedding industry. What do you think it is with with women, perhaps where they're not either proposing or giving speeches? What what do you see from talking to those women? Well, I think with not giving speeches, I mean, it is shocking. Even last year, people are saying to me, "Are brides allowed to give speeches?" and um. I think there's just a reluctance of there being one extra thing to do with many brides, but also just people haven't considered it properly and what fun it can be. But with the proposals, I think, you know, I didn't propose. So, you know, I I am also to blame in this. But it's not uh, a blame thing, I suppose. Yeah. It might be who gets there first. Yeah, well... In my case. Yeah. <laughs> um, I I think I was worried that I would look like a desperate woman that wanted to get married and I, I should not have 
um, bought into that trope of um, seeing that sort of sexist view of women wanting to get married and men not wanting to get married. And I should have just gone for it earlier. Well, there is that, I suppose. And people look back on these things. I think with speeches, you know, my experience with what I do for a living, I am told most of the time talking publicly is one of the least favourite you know, th- things up there for men and women. So there are lots of men who wouldn't want to give a speech anyway. Yeah, um, so never equal mind opportunities to, to claim fear of to it. To claim fear. There we go. We'll put it We'll put it at that. Heidi Alec McDermott, who is the founder of Speechy. Thank you. Dr. Vera beckley uh who did some of this research. Thank you to you. And thank you for these messages still coming in. Uh, Jan says, on the subject of wanting and waiting to be proposed, so I've been with my partner for 36 years. I think that's another 36 year here. Uh, two children, several mortgages, lots of life changes, all led by me. I just want my partner, I wonder if many of you could relate to this, or at least some of you, to make one life decision and therefore refuse to be the one who proposes marriage or even civil partnership. Believe me, he is well aware of this and yet we remain unmarried. Jan does not want to take one more decision. I I do meet a lot of you and certainly when you start talking to me in the street, which by the way, I do by and large love because you come up to me and you start mid-sentence and you will tell me the fatigue that you have about making a lot of the decisions and not just that, making things happen. But let me tell you about somebody who's just walked in to the studio and a treat for you. Have you ever wanted one of the top specialists to go around an exhibition with or for you and point out those stories and things you may be missing? I can deliver that service to you now. There is a new exhibition at the British Museum in London called Legion. It's about life in the Roman army, which was at the peak of ancient Rome, about protecting and policing a quarter of the world's population. It had bases and family accommodation from here, these shores to the Middle East. It's very easy to imagine it was all about men, armour and weapons, but there were women there too, because they needed the next generation, not least anything else, shaping life of the army in their own unique ways. Who better to guide us than the classicist lecturer and author specialising in ancient Rome. Mary Beard, good morning. Hello. Uh, I won't get on to proposals in ancient Rome. We can maybe get there. But, <laughs> but tell, us, tell us what we're not seeing. What should we pay attention to in this world? In the world of Rome? Well, And the army? Well, I, I think that a lot of people would think that an exhibition on the Roman army wasn't exactly the place to go to find stuff about Roman women. Not, you know, we've got this kind of asterisk, the Gaul image of the Roman army, haven't we, with kind of loads of squaddies and hardware, and they're all a bit dim, but they're all blokes. Right? I think what the British Museum exhibition does is just say, just hang on a minute, the Roman army it's not, doesn't have women soldiers... But you can't look at the army without thinking about the women who were also there, the women who were married to these guys, who had their kids, who looked after stuff. I mean, I I think that the, the real memorable standout objects for me in this show are things that are connected with the women. I think that I took away most vividly the little case full of knit combs. Yes, I I went yesterday and <laughs> took that in as well. I felt quite itchy while looking. But tell us more. Well, I thought, who used those knit combs? Well, it could have been the soldiers on their own, but I thought there was lots of women around here and they were getting rid of the knits out of their bloke's hair. And that just spoke to me, you know. Yes, and, and women included in the exhibition. Julia Domna, tell us tell us more. Yeah, there are there are some truly, truly standout women. And the one you come across very quite early in the show is an empress, 
Julia Domna from the end of the second century, beginning of the third century, the wife of the emperor Septimius Severus. Now, Julia Domner is someone who I think, well, she doesn't have great name recognition. I mean, we've all been, or many of us have been brought up on I Claudius, or at least the telly series of I Claudius, and we sort of know about the scheming Livia Sean Phillips, who was the wife of Augustus, and we know about Agrippina Nero's mum. Well, I'm learning fast as well here. Uh, good, good. <laughs> Remember the names of uh, they're in the beginning of the first century C, and um, they're sort of they're, they're the archetype of Roman empresses. We kind of then sort of lose interest in the Roman Empire after them. And actually, if you go to the end of the second, the beginning of the third century CE, 150 years later, you find some extraordinary women, and perhaps best of all, the Empress Julia Donna, who. Uh, she earns her place in this show because she follows, goes with her husband Septimius Severus around the empire. She goes on campaign. She get, gets given the title the mother of the army camps. And she sort of spends her life partly, well, under canvas. I mean, I guess it I guess it was glamping rather than camping in Julia Donner's case. Yes. Um, but she was known, a public figure, uh, and she associated herself with the army. Um, she had a lot of other things. You know, she she did a lot of correspondence. She had a lot of influence. She was friends of philosophers, a whole range of things. But in this show, we, we learn about her army role. And, and I think when you're going around the show, you, you know, you... you take in how large this force was how you had to earn your freedom through it 25 years I believe to, to be able to to be able to be free on the other side but you had to survive that and, it, and and I suppose the untold side of that who's providing the soldiers to to create that army and childbirth and going through that side of things and then also perhaps being a woman who is just a temporary woman for one of the soldiers passing through yeah I mean I, I think one has to avoid being too cosy about this I'm you know I'm not sure that we're really thinking about sort of nice bungalows on army bases no. um, uh, we're thinking for the ordinary soldier of women who were partly temporary partly sometimes bought let's face it um, and partly um, being part of a kind of a shifting community but a community that we just get wrong if we think of it as all men you know, I, I think one of the other things that that really strikes you in the show, uh, excavated actually in Roman Britain, are the little shoes from the fort at Vindolanda near Hadrian's Wall, and there you see from inside the fort, uh, you see some kids' shoes. You see what a clean, in, you know, unless the squaddies had very small feet, um, you see some delicate female shoes, and. You you see a world in which, well, uh, it, it it is not that kind of absolutely rigorously male military hardware world that we often think of it as. The, the show's got quite a lot of really extraordinary military hardware yes. in it, but it's you know the the things that I thought really appealed to me was was the evidence of the women. And, a, a, a surviving letter from one woman 
near Hadrian's Wall, um, the wife of an officer, are writing to a woman on a neighbouring base saying, 11th of September is my birthday, you know, do come along and celebrate. Let's have a party on my birthday and uh, love to the husband and my little boy sends his best to you. Um, a really, really familiar bit of domestic writing um, from a woman who was spending most of her life on, well, actually, rather tough, tough barracks on Hadrian's Wall. Yes, but. and and there's also um, a slave who who became a freed woman, married a Roman soldier. Her tombstone is displayed. I mean, if if Julia Domner's my favourite upmarket woman in this show, then this woman called Regina Queenie. Uh, has to be my favourite at the other end of the social spectrum. Uh, and we know about her only from her tombstone. And there's a rather splendid portrait of her on her tombstone, sitting on a chair with her with her woolworking equipment. Um, but there's about there's three or so lines of Latin, um, which encapsulate in this kind of extraordinary way a really, really diverse and dramatic career because uh, the husband puts up the tombstone to his wife, Regina. Um, but he tells us in this very skeletal CV, he tells us that she, he had bought her, basically. He, she was his slave originally. She was born near St Albans. Quite how she became a slave, we don't know. Maybe perhaps mum and dad sold her. He buys this woman, he then frees her and marries her. Uh, he's a Syrian. He's from Palmyra, he tells us, and there's a little bit of Aramaic on the bottom of the tombstone. And they lived in South Shields, and that's where she died. And he's probably in some way connected with the army. We're not absolutely certain about that. But I think it's just, you know, this really packed life story, but still full of so many questions and problems. I mean, it's quite easy to go along and look at this tombstone and to be a bit romantic about it and say, oh, you know, he had a slave and he fell in love with her and he freed her and they got married. Wasn't that, you know, happy ever after? Uh, and that might have been what happened. But you also see, I think, or you can detect possibly some of the tougher side of being a, a, a woman in the Roman Empire in this. You know, we don't have we don't have Regina's side of the story. No. And, you know, we might want to tell it as as falling in love with your slave. We might want to tell it as a story of exploitation and trafficking um, and um a forced marriage rather than um, a wonderfully twinkly in the eye romance. And you know, she could have been bought and then freed in order to be his forced bride. But it's, again, it's just opening up the possibility of seeing the women there rather than just closing our eyes to them. And I, I think it's, it's a really good lesson for the whole of ancient history that when you... People often say, look, there aren't, you know, there aren't women in all this world. There are women, just we've chosen not to notice them. And what this show does, I think, is say, open your eyes, and the Roman army is partly female. Yes, and, and the brutality, I suppose, of their lives, the men and the women, and, and you know, what, not just women surviving or trying to survive childbirth, but what happened to unwanted babies, for instance. Oh, I mean... 
if there's any kind of part of me that ever thinks um, things haven't come on, you know, women are still having a rough time. Well, women still are having a rough time in some respects. But goodness, you know, you look at what happened 2,000 years ago. And and what did happen? Well, um, women died in childbirth, you know, by, by the hundreds of thousands. But I think the thing that, that really kind of causes me to sort of, you know, slightly jolt yes. is what happens to uh, unwanted babies. Well, there is very dangerously... Form. There is a form of abortion. Um, you know, women have always uh, used some form of ending pregnancy, often at huge risk to their own mm. health. I think the thing that's most chilling about Rome is that um, one form of contraception, as they would have seen it, uh, was just to kill the unwanted baby after it had been born. And we know that uh, uh, a baby, when it is delivered by its mum, in Roman convention and Roman law, doesn't count as a person um, until it's been properly recognised by its father. And that means you can do anything you like with it. And so unwanted babies, unwanted for whatever reason, um, were, as we believe, regularly, and this is to put it brutally, but I think correctly, were just thrown away. They were either killed or they were put out on the rubbish dump. Um, we know from all kinds of very clear evidence that some of the slaves in the Roman Empire were actually those babies who'd been picked up off the rubbish dump and turned into someone else's slave. But the, uh, the idea of giving birth and then having often your husband saying, we don't want that one. Now, one way of covering that up is to say, well, there were so many babies and so much pregnancy in the ancient world that the woman perhaps would have accepted that. They wouldn't have bonded with this baby. Um, uh, let's hope that's the case. But you know, my reckoning is that you know, these women went through agonies when they had to just throw away the babies they'd born. It is a brutal time it's a different time and trying to find those stories that aren't always that obvious is uh one of the things you you were kindly tasked with for us today uh and what what an insight uh the classicist mary beard thank you very much indeed you, uh the exhibition just if you missed it at the beginning it's called legion it's open at the british museum until the 23rd of june and i can also say having taken around a five-year-old boy and um, the helmets that you can put on are really heavy uh, and nothing's been spared in terms of that reality as well and the shields are very very good as well uh, i did have to try and have a play around um let me tell you though about this report i mentioned uh, at the beginning that i was talking to samantha morton uh, people in their early 20s are more likely to be out of work because of ill health than those in their early 40s a new report from the Resolution Foundation and the think tank has said younger people with mental health problems can have chances of a good education blighted and end up out of work or going into low paid jobs. Young women are particularly affected and are one and a half times more likely to experience poor mental health as young men. Lindsay Judge is on the line, research director at the Resolution Foundation. And what is the reason for these rising levels, do you think, and this disparity between those in the 18 to 24 group and those in their early 40s? 
Well, it's it's a, a really critical question and one that we speculate about in the report. Um, we're, we're economists, we're not health professionals. But I mean, I think there's a number of things that studies point to. For example, um, obviously, the rise of social media. Young people today have to face that. Young people of my generation, for example, weren't subject to cyberbullying. Um, there's an awful lot of pressure, of course, on young people today to perform at school and then in the workplace. But there's also potentially a positive reason, of course, which is we've seen a very welcome decline in stigma around mental health over the last um, few years, last couple of decades. And of course, young people perhaps are more likely to come forward and report mental health conditions today. However, regardless of why we see this rise in, in health conditions, the really important thing is it's having real world impacts in terms of people's economic prospects. And I suppose, you know, there's a message here that, that talks about you know, they're not just snowflakes, essentially, if I was to give this message a headline from Claire. Um, the reason, she says, the future is bleak. Uh, climate breakdown, war, political chaos, jobs, housing, NHS, on it goes. The reality is young people, every one of them carries it with them, regardless of education, social class and race. Some are managing it better than others. Many are struggling, my son being one. He's frequently paralysed by despair. As a result, he's not able to earn as much as he should and move along with his life. And he's on benefits. He's not a snowflake. He fights that every day. The young need to see our leaders, in quotation marks, really leading and taking huge necessary steps needed to avert further breakdown, misery. And currently we are racing towards disaster on so many fronts. That's a perspective from one of our listeners. Well, I mean, it's absolutely true that young people today haven't seen the kind of advances in in incomes, in support from the state that perhaps a generation ago young people did. So I can understand your your listeners' comment on that, that the future does look look bleak for many people. And of course, climate change is another important thing that causes existential angst all around. But again, it's, it's, it's definitely not a question of snowflakes. I mean, for example, in the report, we point to the fact that half a million young people today are in receipt of antidepressants significantly more than in the past. So they've obviously been diagnosed by a doctor. And the other um, point we we, we um, highlight is that um, talking about benefits, when we look at personal independence payment, which is the benefit awarded to those in ill health who, who are struggling with work, again, we can see the numbers of young people who are in receipt of that going up significantly in recent years. Although there are concerns about uh, whether you know antidepressants being, being given to, to those, although being given by a doctor, is the right course. And if that is a correct barometer, in itself. Well, absolutely. And one of the things we mentioned in the report very much is that um, this is first and foremost a, a health crisis. And so you'd expect the health service to be responding. But it's also an economic crisis. And we need to look for ways that people with mental health conditions can can still thrive in the workplace and in education. So we point to example for um, the need for more mental health support teams and, and more sort of sensitive teaching in schools and critically in further education colleges where a lot of young people with mental health conditions will end up. And also we need Need employers to kind of step up, and in particular, we need them to step up in the world in the sectors where lots of young people work. For example, in retail and hospitality. But is there not also this much bigger thing? I don't know if this comes up. This bigger picture, which is what can work get you if you're a young person. You know, what what, what where, where are you able to fit in? Are you able to buy your own home? Are you able to certainly even to rent securely? That there's some of those issues about what you can even get for working hard. 
Yeah, and I think a really critical finding in the report is that um, young people with mental health conditions who have a degree are much more likely to be in work and flourishing than young people who don't have a degree. And I think that's really important, that we mustn't overlook the fact that there are a group of people in society, young people in society, with mental health conditions whose maybe education has been blighted by their health and who really have very few options. Those who have a on the university track have a, a kind of you know, an easier kind of ride into early adulthood. But those who aren't in that kind of position are, are really disadvantaged. Well, thank you for that. I, I suppose we'll get some, and I imagine we will get some more messages coming in. Lindsay Judge, Research Director at the Resolution Foundation. We've continued to get messages throughout the programme about the idea and what it really says around a leap year being here. It's a, an excuse to perhaps look at traditions that are, are not moving on and why they may not be when it comes to women proposing the roles that women play within relationships and certainly, uh, as some of you are pointing out, heteronormative settings. But one here that says, as a 32-year-old woman I'm seeing Many of my friends getting married in the past few years, I found it very confusing that so many friends have been so fervently determined to follow traditional approaches to marriage. Almost all of my female friends have been proposed to with a diamond ring, then got married in a traditional wedding. Almost all have taken their partner's names, this is from a 32-year-old listener, with almost no brides giving speeches. I had assumed that when we were at university, given we are professional women who have gone on to have impressive careers, our generation wouldn't do everything related to marriage so traditionally. I've been quite surprised that I'm one of a few, of my friends at least, that seem to feel this way about marriage. I can't think of anything worse than being proposed to with an engagement ring and regularly tell my boyfriend that's the case. Well, <laughs> maybe something around the corner. you have to make a decision in a moment. Um, but it's fascinating to get that picture. Uh, Barbara says, I gave my husband a plain gold ring on the 14th of February, 1968. Told him he could give it back to me sometime. The following evening, he asked, what are you doing on Monday at 12 noon? We were married on the 19th of February. Mere five days later, we're still in love. Uh, another one here. I'm also 36 married married this year. Wow, we're at another 36. This is a real moment. I proposed on Valentine's Day with a message on a rose delivered by the florist. Husband-to-be forgot about Valentine's, went out to play squash with a friend. When he finally read the note, he said, maybe. I found him designing an engagement ring a month later, so the answer was yes in the end. And of course, I gave a speech at our wedding. Why wouldn't I? We have our names joined together too. Thank you for your messages. Brilliant. Uh, I'll be back with you tomorrow at 10. That's all for today's Woman's Hour. Thank you so much for your time. Join us again for the next one. Hello, it's Amol Rajan here. And it's Nick Robinson. And we want to tell you about the Today podcast from BBC Radio 4. Yes, this is where we go deeper into the sort of journalism that you hear on Today, exploring one big story with more space for insight and context. We hear from a key voice each week, a leader in their field, be they a spy chief, a historian, a judge, a politician, all with something unique to say, and we make sure they've got the time and space to say it. The WhatsApps show the character of the men who were running our country at that point. Trump is probably going to beat Joe Biden because he is a force of nature. If the next scan says nothing's working, I might buzz off to Zurich. We give you our take as well and lift the lid just a little bit on how the Today programme actually works. That is the Today podcast. Listen now on BBC Sounds. And subscribe.